Welcome to Fearonomics, the podcast which helps you to confront and overcome your fears about the global economy. We'll be looking at the latest economic data, debunking myths and defining the risks that we need to watch out for. And of course, those that we don't. Globalization connected the world's economies as never before. Cross-border trade in goods and services became more important than ever. But the financial crisis of 15 years ago highlighted how fast contagion can spread around the globe. The COVID pandemic exposed how fragile supply chains could be. And now Russia's war on Ukraine suggests that economic links can be a source of weakness, not strength. Are we witnessing the last gasp of globalization? Might regionalization be a smarter model for the future? This is what we'll be trying to find out today. My name's Jonathan Charles, and here with me, I've got Sergei Guria, Professor of Economics at Sciences Po in Paris, and Beata Yavorchik, Professor of Economics at Oxford University, and also the EBRD's Chief Economist. They'll be assessing the potential, the fears, and the risks of globalization. Let's look at the context. A combination of trade and technology drove the growth of the world economy at an unprecedented rate in the 20th century, right at the very start of it. The first wave of globalization was over by the time of the Great Depression between the wars. The second wave washed over us when China and India in particular joined global supply chains. Free trade was on the rise, the internet was born, but now it's all under threat once again, blamed perhaps unfairly for many of the ills afflicting the advanced economies of the West. Will the war on Ukraine and the sanctions imposed on Russia as a result deliver a fatal blow to the concept which has underpinned our understanding of the world economy for many decades now? And does that matter? A really big challenge. So what are we facing? Isolation, price hikes, populism, what are the globalization fears that keep Sergei and Beata awake at night? Beata, what do you think? I worry about the so-called French shoring, meaning trading mostly with geopolitical allies. I think that French shoring can easily become a slippery slope, undermining global trading rules enshrined in the WTO and legitimizing protectionism in the name of national security. And once this process starts, it will be difficult to stop, let alone reverse. This process will start with trade, but then it may quickly extend to foreign direct investment and a light touch screening of FDI may easily be transformed into real barriers. So I fear seeing globalization being rolled back and the world splitting into three trading blocks, Western democracies, Russia, China, and the rest of the world. I really love the phrase friendshoring, though. It's fantastic. <laughs> Sergey. Well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm more traditional. I, I, think, I think what uh, worries me about uh, globalization is indeed that we can see isolation right now because of the war uh, for whatever reasons. And during the COVID uh, years, by now we can say COVID years, we, can, we uh, have seen how difficult life becomes when you break cross-border trade once you isolate countries, which is still not overcome. A lot of the crisis related to the global supply chains is still there. And that explains uh, uh, price hikes that we've seen. And another thing which is, uh, uh, which, uh, is uh, something that uh, worries me regarding uh, globalization is, of course, that uh, it does bring, bring up uh, the rise of populism unless it's handled well. And uh, we know that populists, when they're in power, with, with some exceptions, but when they're in power, mostly do really 
badly in terms of economic policy, in terms of uh, maintaining democratic institutions. And in that sense, uh, when globalization uh, supports uh, um, uh, populist uh, rise, that is something to be worried about. It strikes me, Sergei, that when we talk about uh, globalization, quite often we do focus on the extremes, don't we? On the one extreme, the fact that it's helped parts of the world out of poverty, it was credited with that out of extreme poverty, and at the other extreme that it has cut uh, perhaps uh, the workers' wages in some parts of the world, in more developed parts of the world, uh, and whereas actually the truth is probably in the middle ground, I guess. But what are the downsides of globalization? That is exactly right. Uh, so for both developed and developing countries, the issue of inequality is right there, in the sense that in developed countries, uh, lower middle class have seen how um, competition with imports, in particular what's called China import shock, when China joined WTO and uh, got advanced access to Western markets, both Europe and US, uh, we saw uh, increase in inequality as jobs and wages in uh, lower middle class, in uh, blue collar um, work, but also routine white collar work uh, were crowded out by either Chinese imports or out, out, outsourcing to poorer countries. And in that sense, globalization has increased inequality. And some of these people who are left behind, not taken care of, especially in countries without generous and uh, well-functioning social safety nets, in those countries, uh, people who were left behind would vote for populists uh, with uh, very dramatic consequences. So that is the main downside of, of globalization. In um, developing countries, as you rightly said, hundreds of millions of people were lifted out of poverty. And this is a simple fact. Global poverty has come down dramatically in the last uh, 30 or 40 years. If we go back to early 80s, about 45% of global population were living on less than $2 per day in today's prices. Today, this number is around 10%. So it's, it's a huge progress. And most of that can be explained by uh, these countries exporting to global markets. But that also creates inequality. Again, people who participate in global division of trade, uh, division of labor due to international trade within those countries uh, see their incomes growing fast and people who don't also feel left behind. So these issues are very complex and trade is necessarily creating distributional consequences and we need to think about those consequences. And so thinking about that globalization will solve its own problems uh, is naive and national governments or international organizations such as Iberdi should uh, always pay attention to distributional consequences of globalization. Globalization, Beata, and interconnectedness is a lot to do with supply chains, building up stronger supply chains. That was what was in it for big companies, wasn't it? To, to have uh, cheaper sources and, uh, and they thought better supply chains, although that's questionable. What are we witnessing now? What, what are the key dangers in all of that? So we are seeing disruptions to supply chains, but we've seen them before. You may remember flooding in Thailand, Fukushima explosion, and obviously COVID and blockage of the Suez Canal. But before these disruptions were dismissed by many as one-off events, and little action was taken to move from just in time to just in case. But by now, there is a realization that's sinking in that these disruptions are here to stay for the foreseeable future. There is no end in sight to the war on Ukraine. Parts of China are under lockdown due to its zero COVID policy. 
And in the summer, US is expecting disruptions to its West Coast ports as labor unions will be renegotiating their contracts. There is a solution, and the solution is diversification of supply chains, so China plus one policy, and holding larger inventories. A recent survey of German firms showed that both solutions are on their minds. A quarter of firms opted for each solution. And among firms that themselves saw disruptions, um, the figure, the share is even greater. But there is a danger in this. And the danger is that governments will use building resilience of supply chains as an excuse for, for protectionism. Early in the pandemic, governments have already tried to use this argument to bring production back. Uh, this has not happened yet, but I expect the pressure to mount. But the logic here is flawed because reshoring is not the same as resilience. Because even industrialized countries are not immune to adverse weather events or strikes that can disrupt production. That's an interesting thought and quite a few thoughts there, Beata, really all around, I guess, whether there are really new opportunities for others, you know, and I was thinking, especially perhaps for EBRD countries of operations, I was talking to uh, someone quite senior from one of our countries of operations the other day, and they said actually that China's problems uh, over having to lock down Shanghai, over frequently having to lock down areas of industrial production, because of the zero COVID problem. Well, China's problems, there are possibilities, was the way this person put it. In other words, they thought there was a possibility of attracting some companies to move to their areas because they would never lock down their economy and disrupt supply chains. Absolutely. This reshuffling of global supply chains is an opportunity for the broadly defined European neighborhood. There's a lot of similarity between what Eastern Europe and what China export to the European Union. So this is an opportunity for countries in the region to grab a larger share of the EU market. Um, and also many of these countries benefit from duty-free access to the European market. So it shouldn't be very hard to increase its, their export presence. Low carbon transition is another such opportunity Many countries in Southern Mediterranean have great potential for supplying renewable energy and hence becoming hubs for green manufacturing. Um, and I strongly believe that green credentials will become a new determinant of comparative advantage. It's interesting, isn't it? Because globalization originally was conceived as a positive, uh, something that would enhance the world. And yet we've also seen in a way a sort of weaponization of it. Uh, you can do that through sanctions. You can weaponize globalization against countries. You can do it, you know, as you could argue that part of President Putin's calculation is to flood the West with refugees uh, as a way of uh, disrupting economies and disrupting all sorts of things. So what are the consequences, do you think, Sergei, of weaponization? Well, um, as... Uh... As globalization does bring substantial benefits, it also brings this uh, threat of removing those benefits. And that, of course, has just been demonstrated for, um, uh, for Russia. Russia has not been the most globalized economy in the world, 
yet it was part of the global economy. It was a member, it was a participant of global uh, value chains. And now we see that across Russian industry, there is a huge dependence on imported technology, capital components. And uh, we see that um, unlocking from globalization is really, really costly today, uh, which uh, indeed creates this question that you raised, to what extent uh, uh, economy should be scared of uh, weaponization of globalization. I think uh, uh, the biggest question is, of course, uh, bigger economies, uh, bigger than Russia. So what happens if China, um, for some reason, gets, um, gets uh, delinked from uh, global supply chains? Well, in some sense, we've seen that in the recent couple of years. And we saw how difficult it is, how costly it is. And uh, in that sense, the um, uh, using globalization for uh, using weaponization of globalization for punishing countries like Russia is feasible and very easy for the West. Uh, uh, doing that for bigger economies may be actually much more difficult. On the other hand, um, on the other hand, to what extent countries that um, uh, that are planning to attack a neighbor are thinking about those threats seriously? Well, that brings us back to. Beata's question of uh, French-Orient. So if you want to attack somebody, you want to build self-sufficiency or at least rely on other um, friends who share your views on geopolitics. But that is actually very hard because countries like China, which are necessary for overcoming dependence on the West, are great beneficiaries from globalization and don't want to risk their own, uh, their own part in the, in the global division of labor in global economy. So in that sense, I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't really overestimate the risks that uh, French shoring will actually happen. But uh, I, I fully agree with Beata that if that does happen, then uh, we may be in trouble. Yes, of course, friends can change as well. They're not always constant, which could be an issue. Uh, Beata, uh, what do you think about this question of uh, weaponization of globalization? I think that temporary sanctions are not a problem. What I find problematic is the steady erosion of the global trading rules um, that is happening through weakening of the WTO. Arguably, one of the major achievements of the WTO was the dispute settlement mechanism. It's a system that was created um, to allow for orderly uh, resolution of disputes, a system that protected smaller countries from being bullied by the larger ones. But dispute settlement stopped working because the US stopped or blocked nomination of judges to the panels. And that has significantly weakened the WTO. What the WTO rules give economic actors is the certainty that exports or imports will be treated in a predictable way, that there will be no sudden or arbitrary increases in tariffs or other restrictions. Weakening of these rules means greater uncertainty and uncertainty is bad for investment and growth. Let me remind you, you're listening to Fearonomics, which helps you confront and overcome your fears about the global economy. You can review us on iTunes, SoundCloud. You can share your ideas with us as well on Twitter at EBRD. 
hashtag Fearonomics. Our subject today is the Fearonomics of Globalization with uh, Sergey and Beata, as usual, both with us. So let's uh, carry on exploring this very, very rich topic. What are the dangers, Sergey, of isolationism? And in, in a way, is isolationism really the, uh, the opposite to globalization? Is it, is it the two poles? Yes, I think uh, that's a question of definitions, but uh, I think isolationism and deglobalization is a big risk, especially for poorer countries. So since we talk uh, about this in EBRD's podcast, development is all about trade today for a smaller country. When you think about when you invest in a new technology, you need to have a market to export it to. If you have a big domestic market, fine, but don't forget that even a big developing country uh, a country with 50 million people or 100 million people may actually have a tiny economic market because of the low income. So we, you, you can have a huge low income country in terms of population, but it will be a very small country in terms of GDP. And in order to invest in high value added uh, uh, jobs, you really need to have access to the global market. And that's what development is today. And in isolation, it's almost impossible to think about, about moving from low wage jobs to higher wage jobs. And in that sense, if we go back to deglobalization, we need to think about new models of development. And as far as I know, there are not any, uh, any others except for those driven driven by joining joining the global division of labor. Now uh, the other thing which uh, worries me is indeed um, yeah, is indeed political equilibrium. So one of the things I would say is globalization does force um, uh, non-democratic regimes to be softer, uh, to pretend to be democracies. Uh, this is what we write in our book with Daniel Trisman, Spin Dictators. We show that modern non-democrats, modern dictators are more suited to the current events and they pretend to be Democrats exactly because they want cross-border investment. They want to be treated as democratic neighbors by Western countries. And uh, you may say it's bad because uh, these are still dictators, but uh, between modern soft dictators and old style repressive totalitarian regimes, I choose the modern, the modern brand. We also argue that globalization may actually create incentives for those countries to become, to become democracies eventually. And most, uh, most of the democratizations are happening uh, today because there is a growing middle class that wants a better quality of life. Now, Russia today also demonstrates what, what happens when you fight that and go back in time and create a repressive regime, how costly it is for the economy. In that sense, globalization, I think, is a force for good, not just in terms of developing the economies of poorer countries, but also creating a more peaceful world because interdependence does matter. And if even if people say it didn't work for Putin, well, Putin's example shows to other potential aggressors how costly it is. And in that sense, I think, I think globalization creates an incentive to be peaceful, to trade, and to invest rather than to invade. But if you think today, Sergey, of all the challenges around where we currently stand at globalization, does that lead you to think that we are in for a period of lower growth than we might have expected? Because if, if globalization is being reined back, if we're not getting some of those benefits, presumably that must leak into where we think global growth is going to go. Absolutely, and that's why, that's why uh, recently, both uh, World Bank and IMF downgraded their growth forecast for the global economy, not just for the region, but also for the global economy. Everybody's in the same boat. Well, 
Some people are closer to the to the hole in the boat than others. But uh, uh, the war creates creates uh, decline in trade and cross-border investment. And that, of course, undermines global growth. But the countries that are going to pay for that most dearly are the poorer countries. And this is what worries me. And Beata, we heard from Sergei there, those holes in the boats, uh, how near you are to the waterline is how uh, you know, your life may change. What does that lead you to think about whether we're going to see new kinds of poverty, returns of poverty that we thought had been banished if globalization is going to be less forceful than it was? Well, Jonathan, it's going to be a slow process um, with scaled back globalization, slowing down economic growth. Because globalization is about globalization of knowledge. As Sergey mentioned, access to a larger regional or global market creates a powerful incentive for firms to invest in innovation, in new technologies, simply because they can spread the cost of investment over a larger number of units sold. And not surprisingly, this is reflected in R&D budgets of large multinationals. These budgets exceed some national R&D budgets of small countries. Globalization is also about imports of knowledge, knowledge embodied in capital goods. Globalization is about flows of knowledge through migration. We haven't actually talked about migration very much. It's about exchanges of scientists and students. And if the world were to split into three blocks, these flows of knowledge would be restricted because part of the French shoring doctrine is not to allow your enemies access to your knowledge, to your technology. And you know, it's very hard, isn't it, these days, you, you go and try to buy anything and you're often seeing signs of that globalization under stress. Either car manufacturers, you have to wait a long time for a car because they can't get the components from some far-flung part of their manufacturing supply chain, uh, often in China or, or somewhere else. Uh, some foods are not available because of difficulties in supply chains. Does that make you both think about, you know, is there going to be a possibility of a speeding up of production being brought closer to home, either friendshoring regionally or in some, some form, you know, because it's hard to see how long we go on like this with such strains in the supply chain. Uh, Beata first. So regionalization per se is not a problem. If, if there is one law that holds, that explains very well international trade is the law of gravity. Countries tend to trade more with neighbors and with countries nearby. And there exist dozens and dozens of regional trade agreement. What is problematic is trade diversion, a situation in which trade barriers cause countries to source goods, not from the cheapest producer, but from a less efficient producer who benefits from trade barriers, from access to a regional market. And you know, if we take this regionalization into extreme and these regional blocks erect greater barriers, um, that will be detrimental to global exchange of goods, to global flows of investment, flows of knowledge. Um, and this is what's going to be detrimental to growth. 
and Sergey, how do you see this? You know, I think it's not that long ago that we were talking about, for example, a new railway line running from China or all the way through Russia, through Belarus, bringing Chinese goods to market. You know, that sort of disruption to that sort of plan shows just how difficult it is. And again, you know, how long can it last that we stick with original ideas of globalization before adapting them? How long before companies want to adapt? Them? I think uh, the big change came with COVID when some countries suddenly realized they don't have masks they don't have personal protection and protective equipment. And I think that per se will create incentives to invest in resilience to border closures. But overall, I remain, I remain optimistic in the sense that uh, uh, when, and, uh, when the peace is uh, restored, um, there'll be no going back to deglobalization. So that the, the countries know that globalization is good, companies are actually investing in cross-border trade and, and offshoring. And in that, sense, in that sense, I remain optimistic. But uh, the next question is indeed what we do during the next pandemic. And I think everybody will now have a plan to prepare themselves to have essential production, even if there is a full border closure. So that is something that, uh, that I think we should be preparing for. And there'll be a lot of just-in-case, as Beata mentioned, just-in-case uh, production of essential essential goods. Now you're so, based so, so in, in, in you're based in the UK. So for you for you the issue of Brexit is probably another another um, perspective. Uh, I'm I'm still in Europe. Borders within Europe are still are still quite uh, transparent. But uh, I guess I guess you can tell me more how it is to live in a country which defies laws of gravity. As Beata <laughs> said, gravity is something which is really strongly and precisely observed in uh, international trade and the fact that uh, Britain decided to defy those laws is, is, is a fantastic experiment in international trade. I see it every time I go down to my local supermarket, uh, Sergey, where I see strains in the supply system uh, caused by, uh, on top of all the other strains, of course, additional strains caused by by Brexit. Um, this isn't the first time, though, is it, that globalization has been rolled back? You know, there have been waves of globalization in the past. So, should we just see it in that context? It is just the latest challenge to a system that's very good at uh, adapting. Uh, Sergey, first. Yes, I think, I think uh, it's not the first time, uh, but one of the things which we observe today already. So, 20 or 30 years ago, people would say globalization is back to its 1913 level. Uh, saying that uh, the, the first wave of globalization, something we observed with the invention of steamboat and so on, uh, and no migration barriers, by the way. Um, so the visas are have been invented uh, somewhat later. Uh, the transportation costs, actually the first and foremost important uh, barrier to uh, human mobility. But uh, today, the globalization went much further than 100 years ago. And in that sense, we already live in an in a, in a, uh, unprecedented globalization era. Now, in the last 10 years after the global financial crisis, the share of global trade to global GDP has been stagnating. Does that mean that globalization stopped? Maybe not. Maybe we just don't know how to measure globalization well, because today globalization is not about trading goods, but it's about trading ideas. It's about, uh, it's about uh, trading tasks. And maybe the statistics uh, that reflected the measure of uh, interconnectedness of our companies, businesses, economies is not a right metric anymore. Because in the end of the day, as you rightly said, you wake up today and you know that you depend on flow of 
not just cars, but also electrons, which happens every second. And in that sense, globalization probably is going forward to the extent that we cannot just uh, quantify. Beata. I think that people have a natural tendency to look for easy solution and quick fixes. So once memories of the pre-globalization world fade, this option of protectionism, of, of going back to the time pre-globalization becomes more attractive. And this collective amnesia is then ruthlessly exploited by populists. And once you started on this populist protectionist path, it's very hard to reverse the process. Um, so that is my worry. It's taking the first step in a process that will be impossible to stop. So let's just uh, try and bring this to a, a close then, uh, this discussion we're having on fearonomics on globalization. If I listen to what's been said, I get the impression it's fixable, you think, you know, it's adaptable. There will be some adapted form of globalization. It's probably going to cost us a bit more money, I suspect. Maybe it won't be as cheap as it once was, or maybe it will be. I don't know. How would you sum up that what we should really be afraid of and not, uh, Beata? I think that globalization is a terrible thing, except for the alternatives, <laughs> right? We've tried protectionism, we've tried import substitution, we've tried infant industry protection. Um, I remember, you know, the world with Comic-Con, Council for Mutual Economic Assistance, right? The socialist trading block with its convertible ruble. But you know, these alternatives never delivered growth and prosperity. Infant industries never grew up and the convertible ruble was not really convertible. Um, you know, uneasiness about globalization is a first world problem. It's a rich country affliction. Um, if you look at survey results, people in emerging markets are much more positively predisposed towards globalization simply because they have seen it deliver growth and prosperity. So what I think we need to do is to protect workers in advanced economies. But remember, there's a difference between protecting workers and protecting jobs. We want to protect workers, not jobs. Mm. Sergey, fixable or not? I, I'm sure it's fixable and indeed uh, going in the same direction, I would suggest to look at the Nordic model where countries like Sweden, but not only Sweden, also all Nordic countries, and uh, including Denmark, which uh, proudly uh, boasts this concept of flex security, uh, try to protect workers through retraining, through finding new opportunities for them, and remaining completely open to global trade and investment. And this is why these countries deliver high income, economic growth, and social cohesion. And this is what other developed countries should uh, learn from. All these countries have huge problems, but still I'm pretty sure globalization is fixable exactly, exactly um, in the, uh, going in, the, in this direction that Beat has mentioned. Now, there is another issue where globalization has to be fixed, and this is greening our economies. And uh, globalization should be compatible, should be made compatible with um, uh, fighting climate change. Europe is now showing the way uh, we'll see how that works over the next uh, seven years, but this is a must. And we know that if we uh, close ourselves uh, 
uh, down, if we isolate ourselves, we will also not be able to fight uh, climate change. Because again, as Beata has mentioned, we need new technology and new technology comes with bigger markets and globalization will generate incentives uh, to invest in greener technology, in spreading these greener technologies throughout the world. But for that, we need to regulate globalization. And this is where Europe's uh, various Europe's proposals, including uh, carbon border adjustment mechanisms, uh, matter. And uh, this is just uh, uh, being designed in a sense. Uh, the same talking about the BRD's business, green bonds, standards, all this stuff related to greenwashing and uh, ESG principles. It's still in work, still work in, in, in progress. But this is crucial for making cross-border trade, cross-border investment compatible and actually pr promoting and contributing to green uh, transition. Thank you very much. I think I take from the last half hour or so that uh, globalization is going to survive in some form. It's adaptable enough uh, that we may be paying slightly more now as it's under strain. But I guess in the long run, private sector companies are always motivated by the profit motive, by the attempt to, to find the best and cheapest sources of production. And eventually they will find a globalization that works to that end and prices will once again you know, hopefully ease, maybe, you know, so I, so I think there's, you know, there's hope in globalization, there's hope in uh, friend shoring, which I really like, there's uh, hope, hope in regionalization, many different ways of, of seeing the diversity of how we deal with the global economy. Um, thank you both very much. Thank you to all of you, by the way, for listening to Fearonomics. It is our podcast where with Beata and Sergey, we help you confront and overcome your fears about the global economy as we were doing today with globalization. I'm not quite as afraid at the end as I was at the beginning. If you liked our discussion today, join us at the EBRD 2022 Annual Meeting and Business Forum in Marrakesh in May. The three of us will be there. We'd love to say hello to you. Uh, we'll be discussing how to navigate globalization in turbulent times. You can review us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. And of course, we love you to share your ideas with us on Twitter at EBRD, hashtag Fearonomics. See you next time. Goodbye. This podcast was brought to you by the EBRD. We'll be back soon with the next episode. In the meantime, remember to review and rate us. It will help others to find us. Thank you and goodbye.